turn to Lamentations if you can find it. That's a little sliver between Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3. And the title of the message is God is Faithful. Talk about the faithfulness of God. So we'll pick up in verse 1, Lamentations 3. And I believe Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. It was undisputed until just recently. but So we'll read what he writes here in verse 1. It says, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not in the light. Surely against me he has turned. He turns his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin has he made old. He's broken my bones. He's builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He's made my chain heavy. And when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He's bent his bow and sent me as a mark for the arrow. He's caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people, a laughingstock, and their song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunken with wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel stones and has covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity or happiness. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. And my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. But, he says, or yet, this I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. And it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sits alone and keeps silence because he has borne it upon him. He puts his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. He gives his cheek to him that smites him. He is filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he calls grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly. And what it's saying there is, it's not in his heart to ever punish anyone. That's not his heart. But he will when he has to. But he says he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause. The Lord approves not. Who is he that says, and it comes to pass? When the Lord commands it not, out of the mouth of the Most High proceeds not evil and good. Wherefore does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? And let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. Amen. So, you know, the book of Lamentations, it's typically not a book that's preached on 
in American Christian circles. And the reason is, in our Western cultures, we so much want to insulate ourselves from grief, from pain, from life's problems. In fact, recently a funeral director at one of these funerals I was at told me that the trend now in America, and this is all over the place, they're moving away from your traditional funeral and they're moving into, it's all these celebrations of life. And they're, they're wanting to get away from their, in a sense, it's like covering up death and mourning and the grieving process that is natural. We want to cover that up in America. So Lamentations is not going to be, you know, one of the books that's preached on a lot. You're not going to hear a lot of sermons on it. But I believe God's placed Lamentations in the Bible for a divine purpose and for our good. And it has a message in it that I think we all need to learn. But I really believe the message is it's a message of hope in the midst of darkness. Now, I'd like to, but y'all are going to have to bear with me. I can't just jump into the message of hope and clearly paint the picture that I think God wants to have painted. It would be an incomplete picture because a lot of times, you ever watch that fuzzy-haired guy on TV that does the drawings? You've got to have a dark background that will bring out what he's trying to highlight that will be lighted. And the dark background brings it out a lot clearer. Or another way of looking at it is, it's the black storm of a night. When you have that, that backdrop, it just makes that bolt of lightning that comes through there that much clearer and that much brighter. We're going to look partly, just take this in context and look at these first 20 verses because it's this background, this black background of the destruction of Jerusalem that gives the brilliant light of God's faithfulness, its glory, I believe. As one man said, God's grace is painted on the canvas of despair. I thought that was a good way of putting it. Lamentations, it's a grouping of five poems. We have five chapters, and each one has a distinct message, but each one is a what they're called a lamentations, plural. It's a lament, or really, technically, it's wailings, or a, like a funeral dirge. So really what they are, are they are poems that express the deep grief for all the suffering that Israel has gone through, the people of Judah. Jeremiah, we know he's called the weeping prophet. And this poetry that he uses in Lamentations allows him to express this heartfelt pain that he's experiencing at the judgment that has been executed on his fellow Jews. That's what we see here. The Hebrew title, it has a one-word title for the book. It's translated in various ways, but it's how with the question, or oh dear is another way you could actually translate it. You get the picture with this of Jeremiah is looking over the landscape. It's like I read a guy say, he goes, we over here, we cannot understand how thoroughly devastated Jerusalem was, how much it was just set in ruins, literally in ruins. Nothing left, just an ash heap. If you ever see some of those either movies or those documentaries, some of those towns that were bombed to death, I mean, it's just nothing but partial buildings and ashes. It just looks so desolate. And this is what the picture is here. And you get this where you're, Jeremiah is looking over this scene and he's saying by the title, how? In other words, how did it ever get to this? Or, oh dear, you know, just like you would do when you come across a terrible scene, you're like, how did this ever happen? You're kind of like in disbelief how horrible this is. And that is the beauty of the Bible, the honesty of the Bible, because it doesn't try to hide where people are at, does it? Where God's people are at. 
but doesn't try to hide Peter's shame. It doesn't hide Jacob's deceit. I mean, he's the biggest conniver you'd ever want to meet. It doesn't hide that. It doesn't hide Sarah's unbelief that she laughed at the Lord. She tried to deny it, but the Bible doesn't hide it, does it? It doesn't hide Moses, the greatest man of the Old Testament, that he's afraid to go speak in front of Pharaoh. I'm not going to do it. It doesn't hide all of those things, does it? And we could go on and on and on. God's people, all of us here, and God's people all through the Bible, they struggle. Don't we struggle at times? And here's what we're seeing is God meets us just like he meets them, just like he's meeting the people here in Lamentations. He meets us where we are, doesn't he? He doesn't meet us where we would like to be or where maybe even we ought to be. But God comes and meets us where we are, doesn't he? And that's what we have here. There's times in our lives, I'm saying whether you're going through it now, you will sometime soon probably, that you're going to be looking around at everything that's happening. And just like the title of this book, you're going to look around and you're going to say, how? Or you're going to say, oh dear, how did I get in this state? And it's going to appear like there is no hope and everything is desolate. But we'll see This is the point of this book. When that happens, when we experience those things, we need to see that God's light shines. That's when his grace will shine. So what we have going on with Lamentations is Israel has just experienced the wrath of the Babylonian army. You think about this for two years. They were besieged, under siege. In other words, they had surrounded Jerusalem. And what was happening, that meant nobody's getting out, nobody's coming in. They're not getting any food, and they're not getting any water other than when it rains. You know, eventually you read Jeremiah, it gets so bad they're eating their own kids to survive. I mean, that is pretty bad when people will resort to that. And that's how bad the scene is. They're starving. The city, it finally falls to Nebuchadnezzar in 587, 586 B.C. The buildings, including the temple, were burned. The wall is completely torn down. Nehemiah had to build the wall elsewhere than where it was originally. And the people are taken into exile. They're devastated. Their land's devastated, and the people themselves are devastated. And we hear that in the psalmist. It's Psalm 137. We've heard this before when he says, by the rivers of Babylon, where they were taken, there we sat down and yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that had carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, sing unto us one of the songs of Zion. And here's what they're saying. They're like, how can we? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You think about that. Think if that happened to us here. Everything's laid waste. Shelbyville, our homes are all, and we're carried away captives, and, all our, and many of our friends are killed. How would that be? That'd be tough to take. That's what we're getting here in Lamentations. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but you get this vivid picture of the people of Israel, they're tasting the fruit of their sin. They never asked the question in this book. The question's never raised, why did this happen? They all know why it happened. But the question is, how long and God will you ever have mercy on us again? That's the question that's being asked. Tasting the fruit of their sin. It's the same picture that we have of the prodigal son in the far country. 
takes all he has, his living, goes into the far country and wasted on riotous living. And here's where he ends up. It says, when he spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And it says, he began to be in want. So he joins himself up with somebody, and all he can do is he's trying to eat the pig's empty pods, which there's no nourishment in that. And he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, at my dad's house, those hired servants have plenty of bread and not only plenty to eat, they've got plenty left over. And here's what he said. He said, but not me. Not me. I'm wasting away. He says, I perish with hunger. And that word perish is... The word for destroyed, it can be die, destroy, wasted. He said, I'm just wasting myself. I'm dying. I'm perishing with hunger. I'm being destroyed with hunger. And the prodigal, like these people, it's all my fault, didn't he? I brought this on myself. I'm sure he is looking around just like the title of Laminations. And he's looking at himself at that point because I'm sure he left all happy with his bag full of money. But at this point, he's looking about and saying, how? Oh dear, I never thought this would happen. And the key verse here, if you want to just turn back to chapter one, I want to look at one verse. The key verse here that describes Lamentations is in one twelve, and look what it says. Jeremiah writes there, he says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? All ye that look at what's happened. He says, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. You talk about the chastening rod being brought out. It was brought out, and they're feeling it big time here. You go back to chapter 3, and you'll see Jeremiah there is describing in the first person how the Lord has dealt with him. And he says in verse 1, he says, he doesn't say, I am a man. He says, I am the man. I'm not the man that experienced God's blessing, but the man that has been experiencing his affliction by his rod. And what's interesting is, is that rod that's being used there, that word, it's the shepherd's rod is what he's talking about. And, you know, we all know Psalm 23. Why couldn't you be teaching that today? Well, maybe we'll teach it next week. A little more upbeat, but Psalm 23 is upbeat, isn't it? The good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. And it talks in there about the rod of comfort. And that shepherd will lead you beside the still waters. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of his life. And what we have, though, at the beginning of Lamentations 3 is it's the opposite of Psalm 23. Verses 1 to 20 totally reverse his experience with God versus what happens in Psalm 23. Because Psalm 23, God is the caring, protecting, providing shepherd. And this picture is painted as just the opposite, and it goes from bad to worse. And I just want to go through it real quick. You look in verse 1. Instead of the rod of comfort, look what he says. He says, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. That's the rod he's experiencing. In verse 2, he doesn't say that he's being led by still waters. What does it say he's being led? He has led me and brought me where? In the darkness, not in the light. And instead of goodness and mercy following him, look what he has in verse 3. Surely against me he is turned. He turns his hand against me all the day. 
And that expression is not used anywhere else as far as God dealing with his people. That is bad when God's hand, and he's saying, God's hand's against me all the day long. And look at verses 7 to 8. He talks about God being a cruel jailer. He's placed him in this enclosed room. He said he's got this heavy chain on me. And he says, I'm like a prisoner that calls out in this dark room, chained. And he says, and no one answers. He's saying, God won't answer me. Now, have you ever had that where sometimes it feels like heaven is brass and you're crying out and it's dark and he's not hearing? I've been there several times. In verses 10 to 11, here's like I said, it gets worse. And here he's comparing God to the wild beast. He compares him to a bear and a lion that are just waiting to pounce on him. And when they do, tear him to pieces. He's got God. He's using all these poetic metaphors to describe how God has been dealing with him and the nation. And he's like, man, he is like a lion. He's waiting and he is actively seeking and hunting me down. That's pretty bad, isn't it? And then verses 12 to 13, he likens God to a skilled archer, pulls back his bow with skill, and he's good at it, and he's saying, I'm the bullseye, and he's hitting me every time, and he's hitting me in my inward parts. And to add insult to injury, in verse 14, he says, I was a derision, a laughingstock to my own people. That's how bad it was. But the climax is verse 16. And you get the picture there of somebody taking somebody's head and just grinding it in the ground. And he says his teeth are broken by rocks and then just grinding them in the dust. And this brought this man to total despair. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, and you have removed my soul far off from peace. He says, I forgot prosperity. Peace and prosperity is like they are so far away from me. And he says, happiness he says, I forgot what happiness is like. That's the way it's been. That's what he's dealing with here. He's saying, I've been beaten. I've been broken in prison, mauled, shot, mocked, trampled. But here's the bad part of it all. He's saying, this didn't happen to me by a stranger. Who is he saying has done this to him? God. Because you look through there, he repeatedly says, he, he, he has done this. He has set me. He has, he has, he has. That's the hard part of all this to take. That's the ultimate despair because think about it. When God is against you, what hope do you have? Because that's why he says what he says. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. The NAU says, my strength is perished and so has my hope from the Lord. I'm saying, when you have no more hope from the Lord, boy, that's, that's as bad as it gets. That's the bottom of the barrel. And that's where he's got himself at at this point, doesn't he? And a lot of times, chastisement, when you go through chastisement, God is trying to get you to that point. It's this feeling, because when you're down there, it's just like with him. It's this feeling of abasement and helplessness, and you get to an end of yourself. Do we all understand sometimes chastisement is because of sin and sometimes it's like what he's talking about with Job. Job wasn't knowingly living in sin. God had something, though, he had to work out of him. So chastisement can just be training. You, you, you train your kids in certain ways, right? And that's a lot of times what God is doing. So as Isaac was talking about, Job felt that way. 
So you think about what all happened to him. God took away all of what he had, and he didn't take it away gently, did he? I mean, it was violently, I would say, taken away from him in a day. That's the way it happened. That's the way Job felt, like God's hand was against him, because Job didn't have chapters 1 and 2, did he? Like we did. We see, well, it's the devil doing it directly, and God's allowing him to do it. He didn't know that. Why don't you just curse God? Look what he's doing to you. His answer was, shall we receive good at the hand of God? But he also says, shall we not receive evil? So it was a hard lesson Job's learning through this. God's got him down low. A lot of times he'll bring us down to nothing without hope. Like this man, like Jeremiah is saying here, in despair. He brings us down here. He's brought Israel to this place. The nation even, you can get the big picture. He doesn't leave Israel there. Sure, people die, but I'm saying, you look at the nation, they were a chastised nation, but it was for their good because they never again, he's chastising them for their idolatry. They never again in the history of that nation were they ever idolatrous again. They learned as a nation, their backside learned that lesson. We're not going through that again. We're not going to have the Lord deal with us like that in that sense. He'll bring you down to nothing. And I like this quote, from the womb of despair, hope is born. That's where God gets us to a lot of times, sometimes because of our sin and sometimes because he's just trying to get the pride worked out of us. Martin Luther said this. He said, God made the world out of nothing. And it is only when we see we are nothing can he make something out of us. So you think about it. Chastisement is a humbling process, isn't it? Because if you've got children and you've done what you should do, When you chastise your kids, they'll go from being that arrogant, giving you that look. It has a humbling effect on them, doesn't it? And they actually want to come and sit in your lap. That's the way it is. It has this humbling effect. Like I said, Israel, Jeremiah are being humbled by God's chastisement. Look in verses 19 and 20. He says, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. Jeremiah says, what's happened to me was a bitter pill to swallow. I have them still in remembrance. But look what he says there at the end of verse 20, and is humbled in me. He's saying all that's happened, as bad and bitter as it was to swallow, it had a humbling effect, which is a good thing. Amen? God's training him. So what's the answer? What's the answer when circumstances are overwhelming us and verse 18 seems to be the truth where it says, my strength has perished and so is my hope from the Lord? What's the answer to that? And I think the answer begins in verse 21. Jeremiah says in verse 21, he says, This I recall to my mind, and he says, Therefore I have hope. So what is it that he recalls in the midst of his darkness and despair? And here is what we need to do, no matter where you're at. What he does is he remembers the character of God. What he is like. What his nature is. That's the answer, and that's what we all need to listen up and see. Look what it says there in verses 22 to 23. And it says, oh, this is what I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope, that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. Or, really, that would be better translated, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. They're both true. Either way you want to translate it, I don't care. He remembers, he's saying, and this is what I recall, that despite 
what my eyes and experiences are telling me, despite all the ashes that I see in Jerusalem, despite the fact that this was a crowded city and now there is hardly anyone here, it's desolate, everyone's been taken captive, despite that the hand of the Lord has been turned against me, despite all that, he says, I'm going to recall God's nature and character, that his steadfast love, despite what I'm seeing, Despite what he just said, he said his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies, it may appear so now, but they never come to an end, is what he says. And above all of that, he says, great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. He does not change. And he says, therefore, Jeremiah says, therefore, despite what I'm looking at, I have hope. The Lamentations is five chapters. Chapter three is in the middle of them. And in the middle of chapter three, all this darkness is surrounding. We have this great light. It's all focused in. That's the highlight of it all. <laughs> Thy steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning and great is thy faithfulness. Here's the point. We may be fickle. We may sin. We may turn our backs on God. We may take him for granted, which is what Israel was doing. And we're not going to get away with that because he is faithful. And he will punish us. He may turn his hand against us for a season. But at the very center of this book, like I just explained, and the center of its theology is the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. New every morning and great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness and the fact that he is faithful, we have got to get down what that means. And that's what we'll talk about. If you're backslidden today, the only hope you have is that God is faithful, the faithfulness of God. And listen, all of us miss it, don't we? Backslidden or not, we all miss it and have to ask God to forgive us. And the only hope we have of coming back into his presence is that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It starts off, God is faithful. Amen. If it was just God is just, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> he is just, but he's faithful. And what's the only reason we have for believing that we are going to persevere to the end? Because we grit our teeth and we're determined and I'm not going to be one of those. That's not the way it's going to be. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. He says, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why he says that'll happen. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. He's faithful and he'll do it. And so that way we can know that we will be preserved body, soul, and spirit unto the end, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we can know. And what's our hope of not being overcome by Satan? And because we have anything in us, it's one again, it's God's faithfulness. Second Thessalonians 3, 3. This is one we don't hear often. It starts off saying, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. It's because he's faithful that we will have the strength and protection to overcome the evil one. We're back to God's faithfulness. And how do we know whatever trial we're in is not going to overcome us? Well, we should all be able to not only quote this, but sing it. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, right? <laughs> Not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we sing it, maybe we sing it too much, I don't know. But that is a tremendous scripture when you're in a trial. The devil's going to tell you this is too big, you've got to bail. And we've got to tell him, no, God is faithful. Always faithful. He'll never let this thing get too big for me. He'll make a way of escape one way or another. I mean, we got hammered on that early on, and that kept a lot of us in trials and saw God's deliverance, where it'd be easy to bail. But the faithfulness of God, it is the bedrock of our faith. And without it, we would have to cry out in despair, my hope is perished from the Lord. That's what the lamentation guy was saying until he got into this. Let's ask the question, well, what do we mean when we say God is faithful? What are we saying when we say that? Or, you know, theologians will say faithfulness is one of the attributes of the Lord. Well, what do they mean by that? What does the Bible say? And we're going to look at three things. And the first thing is that God is absolutely unchanging in his character, nature, and being. He's unchanging, in other words, in what he is. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. He is God, and he's described as the faithful God. And he's called the faithful God, like I said, because his nature never changes. He always acts the same. His character is always the same. He never forgets. He never fails. He never changes his word. He is always and forever utterly reliable and trustworthy. Now, do we really believe that? That's what the Bible says. He is God, the faithful God. And it also says he's absolutely unchanging. It says from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And those just aren't words. From everlasting, looking back into eternity, he is what he always has been. And you look forward to everlasting in the future to eternity. He's always going to still be that way. He's never going to change. He'll always be the same. He'll always be faithful because for him to be unfaithful, untrustworthy, unreliable would be against his nature. We got to get God out of our image and what people are like. He's nothing like us. It is impossible, looking at it the negative way, for him to be unfaithful. Impossible. Because that's what it says. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot. That's a word of impossibility. He cannot deny himself. We may be unfaithful, and we are many times, but he is always faithful. He can't deny himself. He can never be unfaithful. Psalm 89.8 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto you, your faithfulness also surrounds you. And the psalmist is saying there is no being in all of creation who is as strong as almighty God. But he also says he is wrapped, he is clothed, he is surrounded in faithfulness. And Spurgeon said this, he says, there's none in all creation who is faithful as he is. He says even his angels might prove faithless if he left them to himself. 
And you put those two thoughts together there, the psalmist is saying, because of God's almighty power, his unlimited power towards us, not like any other being in the universe, we can always rely on his faithfulness. He's putting the two together there. Men can fail to be faithful to what they've promised us because their strength fails at times, doesn't it? But God's unlimited power assures us that he is unchanging in his faithfulness. He's wrapped in it. He's faithful because he never changes. And what is the difference, the fundamental difference between us and God? And that is, he doesn't change, but we do, don't we? We age. We slow down. And you start noticing when you get above 50, you start creaking, you start rattling, and you start rolling out of bed a little slower. It's not a bad confession. That's the way it is. But God never changes. Time has absolutely no effect on him at all. The passing of the years, they alter us. People come and go. People go the way of all the earth. They die. Not God. Nothing changes him. He is not like athletes and movie stars. I mean, he is not doing Botox and his face is not made into plastic. Like some of these people, you're like, you know, you'd have just been better off to just let it all go because like what you look like now is bad. A lot of them, I mean, most of them. The other thing is he's not affected by mood swings. He's not affected by circumstances or bad hair days. So what I'm trying to say is to say God is faithful means he is utterly consistent. Consistent. You know what I'm talking about? Mood changes. You go to work and it's like, I wonder what kind of mood the boss is going to be in today. Because sometimes some people, you just never know. Or my wife, you know, she'll look at me and she'll be like, what's wrong? You get a text message, you get a phone call. It's like, what do you mean, honey? I'm always the same. No, that's not it. We're inconsistent in our character at times, aren't we? Isn't that how it is? But not God. His character never alters. He's never affected by circumstances. You know, you hear people say all the time, I'll ask somebody, well, how are you today? And they'll be like, well, okay, under the circumstances. It's like has been said, God is never under the circumstances. We are at times, but he never is. If you're in the far country, as I keep bringing up, (laughs) in a backslidden state or any kind of trial for that matter, we need to know, and this is important, we need to know what the prodigal knew. We need to know what the son knew. And what did the son know about his father? Or he would have never come back. He knew his father never changed. Because he knew his father. And he knew his father was a merciful, compassionate, also a just, fair, and forgiving man. Because he'd seen his dad in action day after day after day before he left. And he knew his dad was a rock. In that sense. A rock. Unchanging. And he knew if I go back to him, I know what I will find. That he knows he's going to find his dad is going to be good and fair and have a compassionate heart because that's his nature. That's who he is. And God is like that. That's what Jeremiah is telling us, that the steadfast love of the Lord, it never changes. His mercies will never cease because great is thy faithfulness. You think about people, there are certain people you know, there are people I've known, they are, I consider them reliable, trustworthy, I consider them faithful people. 
And then you all know when people aren't that way. And you say God is like the person you think is reliable, trustworthy. He's that to an infinite degree. You know, when George Patton, he got in trouble for slapping a soldier. He's a general in the U.S. Army back in the Second World War. And his fate was in the hands of George Marshall, who was then the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. And when Patton finds that out, though, here was the way he looked at it. He's like, that's fine. I could handle that because I know him. He's a fair man. He's an honest man. He'll deal with me justly. And I'll put my case in his hands. And that's the way it is. So how much more, if you can do that with a mere man, be willing to leave your case in his hands, how much more if we can do that with a mere man, almighty God, whose steadfast love never ceases. And that's what we're talking about, God's faithfulness. That's what he calls us to do. In 1 Peter 4.19, it says, let those that suffer according to the will of God, to commit their souls to him in doing good as unto a faithful creator. Let those that suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as unto a faithful creator. Have you committed your soul to God's faithfulness because he's your faithful, trustworthy creator? He cares for you. And that's what Jeremiah is seeing here in chapter 3 when he got to the bottom of the pit because it couldn't get any worse. And when you're at the bottom, there's only one place to look, and that's where? That's up. And he looked up, and what did he see was the unchanging love and faithfulness of God and that it could still be trusted. Still be trusted. It could be trusted whether... He's in the temple and Jerusalem's inhabited and they're living in prosperity and everybody's eating. His faithfulness could be trusted then in his love and his mercy and his compassion. But Jeremiah is saying, you know, it can also be trusted when I'm in exile. He never made it there. But when the people are in exile drinking the bitter waters of Babylon because of their sin, he's saying either way, God doesn't change is the point. Never changed. Malachi 3, he says, I am the Lord, I change not. And we've been talking about this. I'll say it again because the more you hear it, maybe you start picking up on it. But what does it say about we're saying God is faithful because he never changes? And we're saying that what we see the Lord Jesus Christ do all through the Gospels, he still is doing because he says, it says of him, Jesus Christ in Hebrews 13, 8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what it says. And he doesn't change. He's always that way. The second thing about what it means to say God is faithful is that he's absolutely trustworthy, not only in what he is, but in everything that he says. To say somebody's faithful, if you consider somebody faithful, you will be able to take them at their word and know they mean what they say, can't you? And that's what God is. Everything he's uttered, he means. He's never spoken one idle word. God has never done that. He is so unlike us. Because a lot of times, we say things that we really don't mean. Ever have somebody ask you, do you really mean that? Do you really mean that? Especially when you're making them some kind of promise that just seems too good. Or you give them some kind of compliment that they probably, they probably looked in the mirror and they're like, you really mean that? I know what I just saw. Do you really mean that? 
God means every syllable that he has ever said. How many times do we go back on our promises or what we've told somebody we'll do? Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we got stuck in traffic or for whatever reason we weren't able to keep our word. Or worse, we just changed our mind because we decided we just didn't feel like doing that and we leave somebody hanging. But how many times does that kind of stuff happen? But God, we're saying, he's never made a promise that he won't or can't keep. So Genesis 15, there's all kinds of examples in the Bible, but God told Abraham this in Genesis 15. He says, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them for 400 years. But he says, but in the fourth generation, they shall come out with great substance. So God gave that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And guess what? The years passed. The centuries passed, didn't they? Years came and go. Israel came into Egypt and they're groaning under the whip of Pharaoh centuries later. And the question is, did God forget his promise? Was he unable to keep his word? Did he lose his power somehow because hundreds of years had gone by? Is that what happened? Because we read in Exodus 12, here is how faithful God is. Exodus 12, 41, it says, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from Egypt. So 400 years later, that promise he made, it came to pass on the very day that he said it would. They all came out of Egypt because his power never diminished and he's clothed in faithfulness. He can keep any promise that he makes. You know, when Abraham believed for Isaac, it says this in Romans 4, that he staggered or wavered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. And so what is that saying? It's saying Abraham counted God faithful. Fully persuaded. There's not a promise he's ever made. There's not a statement he's ever declared. There is not a demand that God has ever made that he doesn't stand behind 100% with his power and his integrity. And that includes the negative side of things because really, what is the book of Lamentations? It's a testimony of God's faithfulness. Just because he's long-suffering doesn't mean he's not faithful. For 200 years, he sent prophets because he doesn't want to willingly afflict his people. He sent prophets. Some of them encouraged the people to get back right. Some of them threatened them. But he sent prophets year after year after year. They beat him, stone him, kill him. Wouldn't listen to him until finally God says, you will see that I am faithful. Because I've said, if you don't repent, this judgment's coming. And he's faithful. It did. So it works both ways, doesn't it? It works both ways. Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He says, has he said and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? 
Has God spoken to you? Have you found a promise that fits your situation? And then the question has to be, has he spoken? Then you have to ask yourself, the next question is, will he not make it good? Somebody came up to me and made a promise and I said, I don't think you'll keep that. You'd be like, what do you mean? You'd be offended. But if he's spoken, he's saying, is God a liar? He's an honest being. He says, shall he not make it good? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we count God faithful? Because Hebrews 10.23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, our expectation, our hope. And why does he say to do that? Why should we hold fast to the profession of our faith? For he is faithful that promised. God is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. New every morning, great is thy faithfulness. And the third thing we're going to say when it says, what does it mean by God is faithful, is that he is absolutely consistent in everything he does. Never changes in what he is. He never changes in what he says, always fulfills it, and he's consistent in everything that he does. He never does anything out of his character. He's always consistent. And we're not, though. There again, compare ourselves to him. How many times do we see somebody do something and we'll be like, that's not like him to do that. That's out of character, one way or another. We're inconsistent, but God is always consistent. And that's why, the point I want to make with this is, that's why we as his children can rest in the goodness of the Lord. Just like his love never ceases, so his goodness never ceases. And we can and we must trust that, that his goodness never ceases. Look in Jeremiah 3.25. Look what it says there. It says, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And it is good for a man that he bear the iniquity in his youth. So no matter what you're going through, even if it's chastisement or discipline, we need to trust that God is dealing with us in a perfectly good way. He is faithful. He's faithful and good to us even when he's disciplining us. He's faithful in his correction. If you would turn to one place, turn back to Psalm 119. I want us to see that. Psalm 119 in verses 73 to 77. God is always good and faithful in the way he deals with us, even in our chastisements. Psalm 119.73 says this, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. And look what he says in verse 75. He says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Let I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. God is always faithful, even when he afflicts us. He's being faithful to his people. It's what we needed to have happen, even when we're under his chastening hand. All his ways are perfect, is what we're saying. He's never out of characters. My point is, even if we're under his chastening hand in the far country, he's not treating us that way because he's in a bad mood. 
because he's just in a bad mood, decide he doesn't like us all at once. He's always faithful and dealing with us for our eternal good. Hebrews 12 says, For they verily, talking about our parents, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But it says, But he, God, chastens us for our profit, our good, that we might be partakers of his holiness. God never makes mistakes. Always consistent. Never makes mistakes. So if you're in a situation you're uncomfortable with, or you don't understand, we've got to just put ourselves in his hand that all that he does is right and fair and just and faithful. You put yourself on an operating table, people do give their life and trust themselves to a surgeon that you really don't know that well. And why do you do that? Because you judge him faithful, reliable, and trustworthy in what he does. And you're trusting that when you're knocked out, he ain't going to take that knife and slit your throat, but he's going to do you good. In the same way, we need to trust our souls to the faithful creator that he will faithfully, in a sense, operate on us for our good. He's only going to cut where he needs to, only put us through situations that we need for our good, no matter how bad they are. We've got to see that. That is what it means to say God is faithful. And that's what Paul did. Paul said this, he says, for I know whom I have believed, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He's committed himself to God's faithfulness. And many times we're slow to trust him. Saying the key to that, to overcoming that, is meditating like this man's doing here, looking back on his past mercies. Meditate on his word to have our eyes open to his faithfulness. That we can see and become convinced like Abraham that God's trustworthy, reliable, and good at all times. Jesus said this in Matthew. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And what's he asking in that? He's saying, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, he's telling us in prayer, how much more? The evil people give good gifts. How much more will your heavenly father give good things? And what he's saying is, Jesus is saying, can't you trust him? Isn't that what he's saying and asking that? Can't you trust him? Can't you hear his voice saying the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? Mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. And that's where this song came from that we have, that we sing at times. Great is thy faithfulness. We'll end on this. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. You change not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As you have been, forever you will be. And great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And all I have needed, thine hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that no matter how dark things can seem to be at times or whatever situation we're in, Lord, and that we can always know, Lord, that your compassions never fail. We can count on that, Lord. Your anger will cease at one point, but your compassions and your love and your mercy go on and on, Lord. And when we turn to you with all of our hearts, Lord, you'll always receive us back, just like the prodigal. We can know that, Lord. When we repent, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So 
We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you the fact that you are faithful to your word, what you say you mean and you will do, and we can trust and depend on that, Lord. ask you to open our eyes to see that in these last days. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.